I think the major challenge we face is making sure that schools are, that schooling is worth turning up for, for staff and for pupils. So making schools worth turning up for, for adults, making them great places to work and making sure that the same applies to young people and families, that they're places that people, that young people want to go to. You want them to think, this has really got something to offer me and I'm excited about the possibilities of at least some part of it and I feel like I'm included, I feel like my voice is heard and it's going to help me do something great with my life. And I don't think we've got that. I mean, I think all of us want that. And I think even the people I disagree with want that. We, we just need to find common ground. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Friends, Earthians, hominids, welcome once again to the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. In the last episode, I was joined by almost 300 people as we had our first ever live podcast when I was also joined by Naomi Fisher, Ellie Costello and Ben Davis to talk about the attendance crisis. In case any of you listened to that episode and were thinking, hey, who's this Ben Davis guy? Why don't you do a whole episode with him? Well, you're in luck because that's exactly what's happening right now. This is literally it. Strap yourselves in. Ben Davis is the head teacher of St. Ambrose Barlow RC High School in Salford in Greater Manchester. Before this, he was a head teacher in Scotland and before that, a drama teacher. I've had the great pleasure to get to know Ben a little over the last year or so because he's part of the Education Policy Alliance, a new grassroots think tank dedicated to crowdsourcing education policy. Exciting news on which soon we have just written our first policy paper. It's about to come out. Keep your eyes and ears peeled. If you want to keep abreast of what's going on on that front, sign up to the newsletter in the show notes. There's a link um, and you will be the first to know. Ben is one of the loveliest people that you could wish to meet. A view that was echoed in many of the comments that we received during last week's episode a principled, passionate head teacher who embodies the principles of public service. Ben has recently been one of the courageous heads who have raised their heads above the parapet to talk about the pernicious impact that Ofsted can have on schools and school leaders. And it looks very much like we're going to be hosting the next National Rethinking Education Conference at Ben's school in Salford. This is not an official announcement, but it looks very much like that's going to happen. And I'm very excited about that. More on which soon also. But for now, I'm going to get out of my own way and hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Ben Davis. I hope you enjoy the show. And so does Mr. Pickles, who you can maybe hear or see in the background there. We're gonna go and get a Thai green curry. Until the next time. Let's education. So we've been we've been chatting on and off for quite a few months, haven't we, about a wide range of things as part yeah. of this interesting new group, the Education Policy Alliance. Mm -hmm. 
don't necessarily want to talk about that right now, but uh, just for the benefit of listeners, we've sort of got to know each other a little bit over the last few few weeks and months. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really an effort to try to essentially to sort of to crowdsource ideas for education policy, isn't it? Um, and we've had quite wide ranging discussions around things like attendance and behavior and recruitment and retention and um, Ofsted. Yep. which we're going to which I think we're going to talk about talked about that a lot yes yeah, yeah. as has lots the half the country yeah for the last 6 months or so um which I'm sure that people are very well uh, familiar with but um I would like to start with with Ofsted if I may because uh it's so current and and because you you have some really interesting views on it um and so so just just for the benefit of listeners would you mind to just introduce yourself to to get the yeah. ball rolling and to say you know what what role you do now and how long you've been there and uh and yeah like a brief summary of your of your teaching career to date sure okay i'll i'll give that a go thank you james right so i'm currently head teacher of st ambrose barlow roman catholic high school which is a largish secondary school in salford uh, it, in terms of its demographic, it serves the whole of the city of Salford, um, which I'm sure most people will recognise as being part of Greater Manchester and adjacent to Manchester City itself. And in terms of our intake uh, and levels of deprivation, we're broadly speaking in line with the national averages. And I've been in the school for eight years as head. Before that, I was head teacher of a secondary school in the west of Scotland. So I've moved education systems and moved schools. And uh, I'm going to say I've got the scars to show it. But uh, it it has been very much an experience of humble learning, I think is probably the best way to put it. And in that time that I've been at St Ambrose Barlow, I think I've now become, in the local authority, the most inspected head of a mainstream secondary school. So since 2019, I think there have been 24 inspections across the 15 secondary schools in Salford, and three of them have been at St Ambrose Barlow. And full disclosure, folks, we are currently requires improvement for the third time. Right. But, okay. But not really. Right. Yeah. Officially, you're in that. Yeah. You're in that category. And yeah. So, so just can I just recap that? You said that there's. Did you say that there's 19 schools? I think there's 15 mainstream secondary schools. Right? 23 secondary schools of one sort or another, all told. Oh right, okay. And the, and and with of those schools, though, there's been more than one inspection per school. On average, yeah. There's a there's a tiny number of schools that since 2019 haven't had a visit, but the vast majority of us have had the call. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're you're the most inspected. So how many times have they been in? In the six? Do you say you've been there for six years? I've been there. Been there for eight years, and I think. I think it's seven times, six or seven times, and we've had a diocesan inspection. And during the pandemic, we've had three inspections. Right. They really enjoy. It must be the quality of the catering or something. They they really enjoy <laughs> coming back. Yeah. yeah, you must have really good cakes or something. Yeah, yeah. That's wow. That's something else. So, and 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 is that because you've been in this requires improvement category, or were you in a, in a different category before that? Why are they Why are they coming? Because average is like four or five years, isn't it? So yeah, why, yeah, why yeah. are they coming so, so often? Uh, well, it, it is related to us being requires improvement. Although the the arcane mysteries of Ofsted inspection timings are are just that a mystery, and. Prior, well, prior to me starting at the school, the, it had a headline judgment of outstanding. 
but it's fair to say there was quite a bit of turbulence and change, and a change to that judgment was inevitable. So I think that's part of the reason. Equally, I can think of outstanding schools, sorry, uh, of other schools that have not had anything like the frequency of inspection, and they are inadequate or requires improvement. So, and that's something that I would want to delve into a little bit more, actually. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so is, is it the case that then that, that your school, because, because previously when schools were rated outstanding, Ofsted mm. sometimes wouldn't visit them for like 10 or 15 years or more. Yeah. Right. And so, but they've, they've now been told that they need to inspect all of those schools. And so is yours one of those schools that they came back around? No, and- ours, ours they came back to in 2016, having not been there since 2008, because I, th- I think a number of factors, there was a ch- change of leadership. I arrived. We opened a sixth form. There was the, the school merged with another school. So it, it, I think it's inevitable and, and probably quite right that there's some kind of oversight of the school externally after all that kind of change. And eight years is a long time for a school to go through that kind of change and not have some, if you believe scrutiny is necessary, not have some kind of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so obviously this is a live situation and are you expecting them to come back again soon? So we last welcomed them in March 22. So in theory, if they stick to their timings, then they should return sometime between March 24 and September 24. And it is possible there might be a monitoring visit in that time. And do you know that monitoring visit could be next week, for all I know. But I'm, I'm not sure that they've read their handbook on their own timings, because they, they seem to be pretty flexible on these mm. things. Yeah, okay. And and how has that been for you? Like, is it like <clears throat> the normal frequency, as we said, is like the average is supposed to be four or five years. Yeah. Like, so, so you're saying that it's, it's every two years for a school in the it's RI roughly, yeah, bracket, yeah. okay, yeah, two to three. Um, but six inspections in eight years mm. um, is a lot, and and so yeah. so how is the how has that been for you to 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 be working in under that level of scrutiny over such a long period of time? It it makes school improvement much more difficult because it means that it is very difficult, particularly I'd say two or three years ago when I was or no longer than that, five years ago, when I was still relatively new to the school, because you you feel like you're constantly second-guessing the timing of the next inspection. There is a real risk that you're doing things for Ofsted, no matter how much you you might not want to and how much you might think that that's not the right thing. It's a very tough balance between preparing for that inspection and just undertaking steady school improvement because school improvement is always when it's sustainable is always lengthy it's complex it isn't linear it's entirely driven by people so it relies an awful lot on people's feelings and on people's personal reactions to changing circumstances all of those things don't sit well with the sort of damocles inspection hanging over you and it undoubtedly has a, a subsequent impact on people's well-being because it just becomes a gnawing weight for that phone call to come in. I could tell you 
the precise details of the timings of every phone call I've ever received, where I was when I was told what the phone call was like, what time it was. And I've got other senior leaders who I've worked with for a long time who half jokingly say they've got PTSD from that process. But really, it's not funny because it does have that impact on you. Mm. Yeah, that that's that, that that sort of idea has come up a few times in this series of, of yeah. conversations that I've been having on Ofsted. And and likewise, I've not been a, a head teacher, but I have been a teacher where Ofsted have uh, have been in my lessons. And and likewise, you know, I could I could you know tell you exactly when and where those those observations happened. And and I think it's because of this sort of the heightened like people often say, what's it called? Like a, a flashpoint memory or something. People used yeah. to say. Previous generations, I guess, like everyone could remember where they were when they heard that JFK had died. Later, yeah. it was like when Diana died or something. It was one of those, those sort of the, the flashbulb moments, flashbulb memories, aren't they, in the psychological literature? Because yeah. it's sort of so out of the ordinary and and, and carries such an emotional charge. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like my certainly my experience is when an inspector enters your room, it's sort of like almost surreal how intense it is and how. Mm-hmm this sort of this dreadful sort of flood of adrenaline, you know, like that thing where you have to slam the brakes on in the car. If you think something's going to step out in front of the road and your body just floods with adrenaline. And at that point you can't really think clearly because you're like, Whoa. And I remember sort of having an internal monologue once and just thinking, there's an actual inspector in my actual yeah, room absolutely. right now. Yeah. Like, it's just like, Oh my goodness, it's actually happening after, after so long. And the, we've been mm-hmm. talking about it so much. It is really like yeah. hyper real in some sense. It's quite un- unusual. Um, and, that is and, a, and I think you've nailed it. That's a very good description. And of course, schools, and I, I have to think honestly, particularly senior leaders and the head teacher live with that day after day, month after month after month. And I've seen it really, really bring people down, really drag people down into a. Um, in some cases, into a sense of despair. In some cases, it freezes people. Uh, in other cases, it, it it prompts really poor decision making because you're second guessing. In other cases, it's just this constant lingering fear that strips the job of enjoyment, that takes away the power of the personal connections that you could build with young people and staff and, and families. And there's this sense of paranoia that everyone is looking at you now you've obviously gone into that role as as a, as a senior leader knowing that it will carry with it a degree of public exposure any leadership role does but i can absolutely relate to some of the heads who i've talked to who say that after the inspection where there wasn't a favorable outcome they walked through the local shopping center thinking that every single eye was on them there's that person who has destroyed our school when in fact that's not the case because very, very quickly you come to conflate the judgment on the school with the judgment on yourself as a professional and ultimately as a person. Yeah. And that's very, very damaging. And local newspapers, I don't know what your experience has been, but local newspapers often like take those off their judgments at face value and they're like, yeah, local head teacher, there'll be a, a headshot of you stood outside the school and it's like school placed in RI or whatever it might be. There, oh. there is that sort of that sense of, Essentially, like naming and shaming of of hardworking professional people who are trying to do the best by yeah. by their students, and um, it's, it's, it's you know there's this thing about the that what the language that you're just talking there about the lingering fear, you know, I, I, I came across this phrase a while ago. I'm sure I've mentioned this on on previous episodes of the podcast. 
it was a it was a, a, a um quote that somebody had put on on peter gray's book and it said that the education system is like a, a a wish in a fairy tale that's gone horribly wrong you know yeah. like a like a, a really one of those things that anybody would wish for and it's just become sort of cursed in some sense mm-hmm. and that might sound like strong language but when you think about it like, like the infrastructure that we have in place that's already paid for we have these buildings that are, you know geographically like accessible and you, kids can go there while their parents go to work and they can make friends with other people of their age and learn about the world and gain qualifications and be taught stuff by these knowledgeable caring adults like on paper, there's just nothing not to like about that. Like it sounds yeah. brilliant. Like if That's you didn't, fantastic, doesn't it? Yeah. If, if that didn't exist, you'd invent it tomorrow. Yeah. And yet, when you zoom in, we see that that we, we there's this weird sort of like self defeating trait in in humans. It seems where we're sort of somehow within this this paradise, and you could expand this wider than just the school system. We're sort of all making one another miserable. And it doesn't really doesn't have to be that way. Like you were saying, like oh. it stops you from improving the school. It stops you from being able to build relationships of trust and and you know, um, uh, well, just you know, it stops people from flourishing and thriving. And and um, offset isn't the only reason that that is happening, but it does seem to be a significant one that that everybody has really woken up to, or not really woken up to. It's, I think there's something about the fact that people like yourself are speaking out now in a way mm. that that hasn't happened before. There's been a fear of that, hasn't there? There's been a fear of people speaking out because mm. you think, well, that's just going to anger the anger the yep. big beast. It's going to make them yep. come down even harder next time. That's that's absolutely right. And when I did speak out a few months ago, I was told there's you know there's a target on your back now. But I I, I think now I've been a head teacher for nearly twelve years. And I think I feel like I've got a duty along with some other people to speak out and say, this should be different. This can be different. And look what it is doing. It, it There is this desire, as espoused in Ofsted's own vision statement, to raise standards and improve lives. No one is quibbling with that. And like Sir Ken Robinson used to say, um, who on earth would argue against raising standards? It's, it's a dead metaphor, isn't it? Right. But... The, the fear that it has created in the system and, and the irony of the fact that it's created issues within schools that are then labelled by Ofsted as gaming or off-rolling, and, and they are unethical, no, there's no question of that, but they are a response to the system that Ofsted has created, that Ofsted then inspects and criticises schools for. There's something so gargantuanly circular about that and, and so damaging that it, it's quite it's really hard to put it into words. And faced with all of that and the fear that runs through the system like it runs like an absolute electric current through it you can you can feel it schools crackle with it sometimes that it creates distorting management practices so you you hear of groups of schools that have adopted ofsted style practices and they do mocksteads and all those sorts of things on the basis that the aim should be to be ready for ofsted and in, and that would just suggest to me that we've we've lost the plot the aim is to do something much more noble and much bigger and much more expansive than be ready for Ofsted. Mm. And f- faced with all that, I think leaders have really got very few choices. You either summon some kind of courage from somewhere and say, Look, I'm absolutely terrified of this. It carries with it huge personal risk. And I feel a gigantic responsibility to the staff I work with, to the people who've said they want to walk this journey with me, to the, the pupils and their and their families. 
But if I don't find that courage and, and go with this and just do what I think is right within the constraints of the resources that I've got, then the alternative is just to fold and to become some kind of flunky of the system. And that's not appealing. But I can see that it creates huge mental health problems for lots of people. It's done so for me. It's, it has at times made me ill. I've gone into counselling because of it. I've talked very openly about that. And the first time I talked about it, a little bit like you describing the inspector coming into your room, I couldn't believe the words were coming out of my mouth. But that's absolutely right. I remember the, a counsellor saying to me when we went into the first lockdown, I had my last session just before that lockdown started, and she said to me, you look totally different. She said, because the, the tanks are off your lawn, aren't they? You, d you don't need to worry about this now. And she was absolutely right. Mm. And for several months, that, that was the case. And I've been very, very fortunate to work with a brilliant team over several years to, to to lead and improve our school. It's an absolute privilege to do it. It's just frustrating that sometimes the nuances of that process aren't captured in what is a fairly bloodless report. But one of the issues for me in all of this is that when I step back from it, I think, why aren't we shouldn't even be talking about Ofsted. Ofsted are just the regulator, so to speak. And instead, we talk about them like they are the purpose of our system. And in fact, the conversation shouldn't be about Ofsted at all. And ironically, I think Ofsted would, would say the same thing, but the reality is, is something else altogether. So I think I think we need to question why it is that we're, we're even talking uh, about this system in that way. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They, they, they often say things like that, don't they? They're like, oh, don't worry. Yeah, do. Don't, don't yeah. write any extra plans. We just want to yep. come and see you as you are. And yeah. it seems like they they seem to be to lack a certain amount of self awareness as to just uh -huh. how how much fear they strike into the hearts of people like uh -huh. yourself and people th throughout the community, kids as well, uh, support staff, classroom teachers, other uh -huh. leaders. Um, yeah, it, like, if only it were true. And I think that if, if for example, if they didn't publish. The reports, right? If the report remained private mm -hmm. between you and either, you know, your local authority, if you're a local authority school, or a, a, your your trust leaders or whatever, if it wasn't published, then I think that that would go a long way. And and they they say that 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 they they need to publish them because they provide information to parents. But um, as we talked about in the report in the in the that we wrote mm -hmm. for the Education Policy Alliance. The quality of that information is highly questionable, and there was a, there was a study that was done recently where that suggested that you know half of the time, if a parent looks at the latest Ofsted report, um, it'll be out of date. It's out of date information because there's yeah yeah that's right quite likely to have been a change of leadership and a change of direction at the school since that report was written. So the quality of information that is highly questionable. This the, the yeah. very idea that you can rank something as complex as a school on a four-point scale and yep. guess that that actually means something real is ridiculous we've moved away from grading lessons because we realized that that was methodologically ridiculous but we haven't let go of of, mm. of not of grading schools yet um and so the yeah the quality of information they're giving is is poor quality and out of date and so that's a that's a very weak defense isn't it well yeah and also the the reports are, are in the region of about, I think, 600, 700 words to describe anything from a monitoring visit to a two-day visit 
And a, and a two-day visit in a large school could involve seven or eight or more inspectors. And the language they use manages, it, it, it's a real achievement, actually. It manages to be over-specific, blunt, and esoteric all at the same time. <laughs> so Ofsted's own data says that 65% of parents find the new version of reports that have existed since 2019 easier to read. I I would question that, and I'm not convinced that many parents use an Ofsted report solely to make a judgment about a school. But I've got a few, we can play bingo here. I've got a few examples, right? So these are just from random reports. You can't identify the school from them. But I've got quotes here where they describe in the in the first section, which is what the school does well, pupils are equipped well to tackle gender stereotypes and they understand how mortgages work. All in the same <laughs> sentence. Right? It, and then you've got incredibly technical language that applies to one subject that many people of all walks of life would would struggle to understand or at least have to go and look up in the dictionary in english in year 10 by fully understanding the term hamartia pupils could analyze what led to romeo's downfall in the play romeo and juliet so two two examples there that demonstrate that kind of language and then uh, if you were to take and I do this sometimes with, with the team uh, as a way of making the point that we're not doing this for Ofsted. I've got in front of me something I did recently with, with the team where I've got five quotes from good reports and five quotes from RI reports. And I defy you to spot which is good and which is RI. Yeah. Do you want right. to have a go, James? Yes, please do. Right. Let's have a little game. Okay. And this first sentence is an absolute beaut. Uh, it demonstrates just how circular and literal Ofsted like to be. Leaders are taking appropriate actions to improve attendance. This is important as some pupils do not attend school regularly enough. Which is helpful <laughs> to get that clarity there in the second sentence. Do you think that's a good or an RI report? Um, I'm going to go with RI because it sounds like they're damning them with faint praise. It's a good report. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's what I know. Right. Here's another one. Some pupils have not achieved as well as they should, as some still have gaps in their knowledge. Pupils with special educational needs and disabilities do not always receive precise enough support. RI or good? Oh, I'm going to go RI again. It's a good, and it's a good good. It's good good all the way. Right, interesting. Yeah. Pupils' behaviour at social times is typically calm. However, during lessons... Some staff do not follow the behaviour policy well enough to address the disruptive behaviour of a minority of pupils. This hampers, hampers pupils' learning in certain subjects. I'm going to go good. It is good. I'm it getting is... the hang of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you see, uh, then if I read you a couple from RI, mm. this is a welcoming school. Leaders are passionate about providing pupils with the best experiences. Relationships between pupils and staff are positive. Pupils enjoy coming to school. Most pupils enjoy their learning and experiences, so they attend school regularly. That's an RI school. Yeah. That sounds like a nice school. I'd like to send my kids there. I'd send my kids there. So, yeah. One more. Do you want one more? Right. On. I'll, give you, I'll give you another RI. Um, yeah. Most pupils enjoy coming to school. They said that they feel safe. Pupils work hard to support their local community. They have opportunities to raise funds and support local charities. This helps them to empathise with others who are less fortunate than themselves. 
that sounds like it requires further improvement. That's that, not good enough. That, that sounds amazing. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's so absurd, isn't it? That's an all right. That's that's actually um that's my that's that's the school I work at. So, really? Yeah, right. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Right. So I mean, yeah, I like and I've worked in I've worked in outstanding schools, I've worked in in schools that are in special measures and I've I've seen amazing things happen in schools yeah. that are in special measures, and I've seen very very concerning things happening in outstanding schools, and vice versa, right? Like the, there's so much more. If you had to do a Venn diagram of the not of what Ofsted, um, like you know, like having their categories, but if you mm-hmm. had a Venn diagram of what school those schools were actually like. I don't think it would even be a straight line. They, they would just be all over the place. But there, yeah, there would yeah, be so much more of an of an overlap. Yeah. We're talking about like tiny little differences at the margins, often between schools, and and making a very very harsh dis- distinction between something that you could fit a Rizzler paper between. Yeah. Um, and and, really and bizarre, highly subjective judgments from inspectors who are, whether they will admit it or not, who are undoubtedly prey to unconscious bias based on what they've read because they do a fair bit of homework before they come into the school and it means that you can easily be in a position where you're on the back foot facing some you're basically on the back foot facing Shane Warne at the Oval and that's not a not a good position to be in for anybody um and I think that 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 is something that we probably don't talk about enough I I have spoken to school leaders who say that the and this hasn't happened to me that the inspector arrived at eight o'clock on the first morning and gave the impression that they had already judged the situation but certainly i've had most inspectors come into the school on the first day and say so how would you grade yourselves to which my response is well that's your job not mine and you you need to, to you need to work this out with me but i i've had examples of inspectors asking staff to spell the word dyslexia um i've had children and staff in tears. I, I have submitted complaints in the past uh, to Ofsted. I, I can think of a number of situations that made people, staff in particular, deeply uncomfortable about the inspection process. Equally, I can think of a number of inspectors that we welcome into the school who are clearly highly competent, very skilled human beings who are seeking to do the best and probably struggling to fit it within the constraints of the framework that they have to work in. Mm, yeah yeah one of the things that's that's uh i've been thinking about a lot one of the last people that i interviewed in this series was a head called um calvin henry yeah if you know him yeah 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 he he was in the press a bit because he had a very similar experience to to ruth perry where Mm. he had this sort of kafkaesque experience where the, the inspectors came in to a what he strongly felt was a was a good school and he was a an Ofsted inspector himself with lots of experience of, of, of grading schools. And he was saying that like in a, under a previous um, framework, it was based on, on APS on average point score. Right. And then mm-hmm. it was very clear. It was like numerical. You could just use a spreadsheet to decide what category of school is going to go in. Mm-hmm. And you could argue the merits of that. Um, but um, he said that when the new when the new thing came in and everyone was applauding it and saying, "Oh, it's great! They're mo- moving away from looking at data and they're going to look at the curriculum and they're going to look at the processes and stuff," yeah. it suddenly became super subjective and it was just down to the down to the individual lead inspector and their team to sort of interpret how this thing is going to be 
yeah, how, how this is going to be understood. Um, and it just opened up lots of areas of ambiguity. Is that your understanding as well? Is that something that you recognise? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I do a lot of trawling. It's a bit a bit of a running joke of the Ofsted website because it it does fascinate me, and I like I, I like to try and understand the process. And I, for me, it's the system that's at fault. It's the framework that's the problem. It's the very existence of Ofsted. I'm not pointing the finger at individuals who undertake inspection, although I absolutely applaud those who have protested by handing in their badges. Um, but people make decisions on personal basis. For personal reasons, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to criticise anyone. Nevertheless, I can absolutely identify with what you've just described: highly subjective actions and comments to very very specific instances of things happening in schools. And Ofsted really are the masters of taking something uh, that's a single instance and doesn't represent anything other than what's happened at that moment or what's been said at that moment, and then expanding that to a hypothesis or a line of inquiry that can be very damning and can also be extremely difficult to defend without making it look like what you're doing is being an apologist for poor practice. So, I, for example, a stray comment by a pupil. Uh, we've, I think we've all read discussions of uh, children allegedly demonstrating sexually inappropriate behavior, but what they were doing in the playground is doing the floss. Th those kinds of things. Um, young people displaying, let's say, tactile behavior towards, boys displaying tactile behavior towards one another in the canteen, let's say, when they're queuing up. And that being reframed as child-on-child -child abuse or concerns around safeguarding. And things are rarely as straightforward as that. They're often much more nuanced. And equally young a thousand or so young people in a school every day with 150 adults is if you zoom back from it is a community that a good friend of mine always used to say that should never work but it does and it works far more often than it doesn't but within that you've got to accept the huge variability in the way that everyone reacts to that environment and and i don't think ofsted truly captures that and to go back to the point you made about achievement data I've come across a number of fairly recent inspection reports where you've got both good and outstanding judgments applied to schools that have got significantly negative progress eight scores. And I think on one level, it's absolutely fair that the impact of the pandemic is being taken into account in that respect, if that's what's happening and data is being discounted. On the other hand, there are lots of schools that haven't yet reached the good or outstanding judgments who slaved away improved outcomes hugely and aren't yet reaping the benefits, if that's what we want to call it, of a more positive Ofsted grade. Mm. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So so, so just to wrap up this this bit on Ofsted, yeah. um, like to go back to the, this report, so we've just um, written this this consultation paper with the Education Policy Alliance, and essentially the, the, we came up with a bunch of, um, of recommendations um, mm. that we wanted people to comment on. And this is not a policy paper. It's just it's yeah. just some ideas that we're kicking around at the moment. But essentially, the the main thing for me is that Ofsted's remit is so broad. Mm -hmm. Like they're writing reports, they they're doing these subject reviews. They write reports on knife crime. You know, like they're talking, like what are you saying? You know, they're talking about do kids understand mortgages? Like it's a really really broad remit, and. Yeah. 
and by their own measure, like the the, the the way that they say like safeguarding is so important that it's a rate limiting thing. So you could be good for everything else, but if we find that there's a fault with safeguarding, that's enough of a reason to to haul you over the coals and to put you into a lower category. And then they don't turn up for another five or sometimes yeah. even even longer years. But even if it's even if it's once every four or five years, as they say that it should be, that's not enough, right? That's not that's not frequently enough to be able to make sure that that school is safe. Like, like there's, it's not enough. And it, so it seems like what, what needs to happen is that they, they their remit, either, either Ofsted needs to be massively expanded as yeah. a, as a, um, as an organization, which I think very few people would argue for so that they can do this thing every year, or it needs to be massively slimmed down mm. so that their focus, if, if safeguarding is, is so important that that's essentially their primary function, then take it seriously and do a safeguarding visit every year. And lots of that stuff can be done remotely, mm. right. By looking at things like, you know, like turnover and, um, absenteeism you know you can you can see a lot just lots of things there are indicators in the data um but essentially so our first re our first recommendation would be to slim down Ofsted's remit to focus primarily on safeguarding mm. um what do you think about that as an idea yeah well I, th I think slimming Ofsted's remit's got a lot of merits I mean Ofsted's got 1800 employees according to their own website it's it's a lot it's a very large organization and interestingly, I think, although it talks about its inspections of uh, settings other than schools, uh, it's Kafkas, for example, the first thing that comes up when you go onto their website is the option to find an inspection report about a school. The second one encourages you as a parent to comment on your child's school. So let's make no bones about it. Ofsted's focus is very much on schools. And that's because... It, although it is independent, it is in effect and has become so, in my view, more recently, an ideological arm of government. It, it enacts policy. It's also become the curriculum body, de facto curriculum body, other than the DfE, for England. And consequently, it wields a great deal of power and it is inspecting some of the very concepts that it, it, it is pushing out. It's research papers are given huge amounts of time on in-service courses uh, as, as part of training for senior leaders. And yet there's been a lot of crit critique of those uh, research papers from all sorts of quarters, mm -hmm. including from people who are named in them who have suggested that they would rather not be named in them. And that is crowding out a huge range of other research that would be a benefit to schools. So slimming its remit would make sense. I, th I think a focus on safeguarding should be a key part of that. I think there's further discussion to be had around that, James, particularly in relation to the role of local authorities. We undergo a safeguarding audit every year from our local authority that is far more rigorous and far more searching than any um, Ofsted conversation I've had around safeguarding. And I think this, this also, for me, goes to the heart of all this. We don't do safeguarding in our school because of Ofsted or because of the local authority. We do it because it's entirely the right thing to do to keep children safe. And it's not like we need Ofsted to exist to feel a sense of accountability. Mm. Leaders, uh, leaders, unless they're deeply unethical people, feel that sense of accountability, and it's it's what drives them. And I feel a strong sense of accountability to our governors, to our families, to pupils, to the local community. That's why when we have an unfavourable outcome or the results aren't as good as they want, that that feels difficult to absorb. It feels shameful. And 
I think part of the discussion also needs to be what exactly is the purpose of inspection more widely and is inspection in any form needed? There are lots of alternatives, but of course, politicians are going to want a simple inspection system that allows them to say 85% of schools are good when we came into power and now it's 90% so we can show a 5% improvement in the education system. Yeah, I, I, I get that, but there are countries around the world that are doing these things very differently and, and safeguarding is often at the heart of that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, There are many very high performing um, school systems that don't have anything remotely like Ofsted. And that's one of the questions in our survey that goes along with this consultation is, should schools be regulated by a national body or locally by mayors or county equivalents, or like you say, by local authorities? Um, and and so maybe yeah maybe slimming down is still to like like does it does it actually need to exist because one of the one of the things is like like you mentioned about raising standards like it's called it's standard the Ofsted standards doesn't it for the office for standards in education yeah. um, there's a bit more to it than that but that's basically it and um, and yet there's no evidence that the Ofsted raises standards like there, there's been there's there's a a, I don't have the, the data. If people are interested in that, if they look up the report, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, all the references are in there. It might have been the, the National Audit Office or something. Yeah. That, um, that there's, there's no evidence that, that Ofsted actually does what it says it's it's designed to do, that, that what yeah. it says that it does in its mission statement. Um, and so, yeah, does it actually even need to be slimmed down? And then, and then people might say, but what about all of that other stuff? And it is important, the other stuff, that yeah. the, the, the schools are accountable not only for safeguarding, but for curriculum and behavior and attendance yeah. and assessment practices and all of that stuff. And then we propose that alongside this sort of safeguarding audit, which, as you say, could be done by, um, by a local authority, um, that there is then... Um, like a, what we what we call a school accountability network, where a school is sort of partnered up with another local school, and they they inspect one another, right? And so they they make a little vertical sized team. So there's school leaders, middle leaders, early career teachers, the uh-huh. senco, teaching assistants, kids, parents, and they could go into another school. And I've I've done work on this. There's a, there's a thing called research informed peer review. Mm-hmm. Um, where you you go into a different school and you look at a particular issue. So that school might have a self-evaluation report that says, you know, we're not getting feedback right currently. We really need to get our heads around this. And this is going to be our focus for this year. And you can look at other things as well, but let's mainly look at feedback. And then that's going to be a focus of like a three-year working relationship, say, with this other school. And then we switch partners and then they get partnered up with some other school. Um, and so that, that accountability and and the, 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 those schools would write reports and, and there could be a template that where they fill out, you know, what they're seeing. And then um, that can be that can be stored centrally. And if you like, even published because it's not judgmental. It's just like, here are some things that this school is doing really well. Here are some areas that they might want to think about working on in the future. And there's an action plan to help them do that or whatever. Um, you could have that level of accountability. Um, like it's, it's the whole thing seems to be based on the idea that 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 they're trying to sort of like catch these lazy, feckless teachers out. Yeah, you know, be, being lazy and feckless, and that yeah. they're sort of, you know, that 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 this is somehow necessary to stop people from getting away with it, you know? Absolutely. And I think it it also comes from a sense of a power imbalance that they as Ofsted have some sort of knowledge and special view of things that confers on them the ability to make judgments about schools that's conferred on them, for example, 
the capacity to create these curriculum research reports, uh, research reviews rather, that's conferred on them the capacity to write about um, child-on-child abuse in the wake of the Everyone's Invited scandal. But actually, there are lots of other voices in society that are more than capable and probably far better placed to do that with greater independence. If the idea of those Ofsted research reviews is to bring together a web of research to make it more accessible for staff and schools, that sounds quite noble. But to do that, it would need to be far more representative of a wider range of research than those reports are. Yeah. If you look at the work, for example, of Mark Priestley in Scotland, um, he he talks a lot about te- uh, teachers as curriculum makers. I think it's Mark Priestley that says that. And th- there's an argument now that some of the thinking that's driven Ofsted's framework is pushing some multi-academy trusts into a position of removing autonomy from staff and taking away the power to be curriculum makers and actually just creating recreating them as deliverers of a curriculum mm. and that deprofessionalization is is a real issue um within the within the, the the profession and contributes to recruitment and retention issues so there are okay. so many there are so many connected issues here but i mean the, the metaphor i use is i feel like Ofsted sits at the center of our educational solar system like a dark star and its gravitational pull is felt absolutely everywhere Mm. it is impossible to escape it and it and it freights the the system with fear and that is what that that is at the heart of why we're all speaking out because we're saying that isn't good enough it's certainly not good enough for our children it absolutely isn't good enough for our staff totally and as you say like it's a it's at the heart i like that metaphor a lot and it's the heart of this nexus of all of these issues that we're seeing especially around recruitment and retention as you say like yeah. when we when we started kicking around those ideas we were sort of saying like it was a, it was a bit of a flippant re- reference to make america great again so we we're sort of saying like um, make teaching desirable again right yeah. like because it's yeah. it's really hard like recruitment and retention why are there so few people applying to become teachers why are there so many leaving the profession because it's so hard and stressful and you see these people now writing these blogs saying I've left teaching and it's wonderful to come in, come in. There's a huge Facebook group uh, yeah. about like ex teachers all sort of celebrating the, the newfound freedom and how they have a, a nine to five job and they don't have to take all this stress and marking and stuff and report writing home with them. There are many, many interconnected problems, but I think that, as you say, that this, this, that this fear inducing organization is right at the heart of it. And I mm-hmm. think that we it absolutely needs to be addressed. And so, so go on. We're going to come in there. And, then and, I, I wanna... and the great and the great frustration is that Ofsted themselves don't don't recognise that. I think they they seem to feel that they've listened to the concerns that have been raised, but I don't think they've even started listening properly. And I I, I think there is a, a long road to travel to address this issue. I mean, I I'm incredibly proud to to do this job, and I think it's a huge privilege to do this job. It makes me so sad when I hear of staff who've left the profession and who've had really terrible experiences. If my children went into the education professions, I would be absolutely delighted. But I think part of the issue for that isn't doesn't just sit with Ofsted. It sits with the denigration of public service that I don't know how a political I'm allowed to get on this podcast, James, but for me, that that really took root with, with the Johnson premiership and hasn't righted itself. And I don't think public service 
is something that's that's really praised and valued. I would even point to well prior to Johnson coming into power, the rebranding of the Department for Education, Children and Families is the Department for Education. And what's been removed there is the idea of service to communities, children and families in their communities. And I think we feel that. We mm-hmm. feel that in the, the impact on resources, the impact on funding. That affects recruitment as well. I think, of course, the other thing is that a lot of staff have gone through the pandemic and have seen the flexibilities that are available to people in other walks of life. And understandably, they want those things because it means you can take your child to school in the mornings. It means you can spend a bit more time with your child growing up. It means all kinds of things that are are not benefits on which you can put a price, but are Mm. deeply valuable things. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? That that shift, the, the the narrowing down of the remit from the DCSF, as it was called. And it was sometimes jokingly referred to as the Department for Cushions and Soft Furnishings, right? That yeah. it was like it was a bit of a, a, a long, long-winded um <clears throat> definition. But to reduce it down to education, it's almost like you can just take take education in isolation from other mm-hmm. areas of social policy. Like you say, you know, schools don't exist in a vacuum and Often, for example, schools are the schools are, are, are um, given the responsibility of like close the disadvantage gap, essentially yeah. like fix intergenerational poverty and disadvantage and underachievement yeah. uh, and entrenched you know problems in communities in in the context of you know five hours of, of lessons in a day and actually like, there's a yeah. bit more going on I mean, to the disadvantage a, gap than than that. I mean that is a whole other podcast, isn't it? Because that opens up so many difficult assumptions around class and poverty and race and language that sit behind many of the policy pronouncements that we've seen that sit behind elements of the inspection framework, that there is effectively a certain way to be a citizen in this country. And if you're not that way, your life is much more problematic, but also you are problematized yourself. And it it contributes to this sort of deficit view that, that takes root and the source of which is institutions like Ofsted, and that damages hugely the way in which people see themselves, the way in which communities see themselves. An inadequate or RI judgment on a school and a community can be can have huge ripples across parishes, community centres, um, whole groupings of people. Mm-hmm. And that all is then reflected back onto a tiny number of people who are often dealing with, particularly in the last three or four years, a set of social circumstances that are far beyond their control. And the things that they can control are relatively small compared to the size of the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they do it anyway, I think, with great nobility and and a great sense of service. I've not met anyone at any level in schools who doesn't feel a massive sense of service, however they articulate it to their schools. And I think that needs to be celebrated. And and my last point about Ofsted, James, if I I may, uh, and I'll try and make this the last point, is that I think... They have contributed to a very negative view of young people. And I don't I dare say they haven't meant to do it, because I suppose if you're raising standards and improving lives, what you want to do is celebrate the young people whose schools you're inspecting. But when the narrative is constantly around what young people have failed to do, the gaps that they that, that need closing, the knife crime that they're involved in, the mental health problems that they face, the issues to do with um things like so-called child-on-child abuse and safeguarding and gangs, it, that 
inevitably extends into the wider social sphere of communities and people start thinking and talking very negatively about young people. Our young people over the last three years have faced problems the like of which I, I didn't face. And on top of that, they they have the challenges of social media and, and other things like that. And I think they've been utterly brilliant uh, and, and an absolute model of genuine resilience. And they just don't get credit for it. Uh, it the Scottish Parliament applauded their young people. and I'm still waiting for our Parliament to do the same thing. So. Wow. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. Yeah, right. You're just sort of like continually saying like, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. And it and it locates all of these problems in the child. Just before just before we started recording, you were talking, weren't you, about how you're often invited onto like local radio and stuff to talk about vaping. And mm -hmm. it's like there are, the, yep. there are these hot button issues that everybody gets very hot under the collar about. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're often sort of like quite small issues that place the problem in the child. It's like, oh, the kids are vaping. What are we going to do about that? And there's like, there are many, many bigger fish to fry. And maybe we'll come back to some of those bigger fish towards the end of this, of this conversation. But let's, mm. let's pause Ofsted for now. I, I will make, we will make that the last point okay. on them for now. Right. Cause like you say, like we, they don't deserve this amount of airtime. Like obviously it does because no. it's a huge problem that needs um, to be fixed, but we do need to shift the conversation uh, and, and, re and, it, and, it, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel this fearsome to talk about it mm. but i'm slightly over that now but at first it felt like i was breaking the, the last great taboo of society talking about this publicly and i'm struck by the number of heads who have talked about it anonymously and i don't blame them absolutely of course right well like, like stephen ball um is a brilliant um sociologist of education i don't know if you're familiar with his work um he talks about he talks about it as the micro politics of little fears Right, mm -hmm. like, like, why don't people speak out? Because yeah. they're afraid, right? Because there's football manager syndrome among head teachers. You've got a kids and mouths to feed and a mortgage, and mm -hmm. you know, like, I've got a friend who um, who's about to leave the teaching profession, and he's he's currently um, talking about about writing a book to talk about all of the things that he's not been allowed to talk publicly about while he's been, you know, while he's been a teacher, because if he talks about the, what it's really like to be, you know, for example, he talks about how um, it's, it's really difficult to teach, especially bottom set kids, but like just generally kids who, who are struggling to, to pass. So he's a science teacher. Yeah. Um, you're teaching them about things like the specific heat capacity of steel versus water yeah. or whatever it might be. And it's just really abstract stuff that like they have to know about to pass the exam but that's got zero relevance to their lives. And it's quite hard to get their heads around. And he's essentially yeah. just saying that it feels like it's my job to make kids feel bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. That's how it, that's how it feels sometimes. And that actually yeah. my job, the way that I interpret it is that I need to shield them from that. And I need to just like give them, like make them do leave my lesson feeling like they've feeling yeah. like they've achieved something, but that's not really, you know, like officially what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And, I mean, um, that's so sad, isn't it, to, to, to hear a professional feel that way? I mean, I, I was talking to our assistant head who's in charge of uh, professional development and learning and teaching recently, and she was talking about how we're going to develop our assessment strategy. And she said, we need an assessment strategy that makes kids feel 10 feet tall. Yeah. I thought that that is an abs I, I would I haven't got permission to name her, so I won't. But that says everything about her as a person, but absolutely everything about what drives her as a professional as well. 
Totally. And I don't think it would be hard to 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 construct that that assessment system. I think it would be a bottom-up one rather than having some standard like yeah. grade nine. Essentially, the whole system is just like everybody's in varying degrees of, of failing to get straight straight grade nines at GCSE. And you know, and, and even the ones who get straight grade nines, they're not necessarily that well off either because they're like terrified of getting an eight, terrified of getting a B, terrified of failure and working their fingers to the bone. So even, even for the so-called winners, this this setting this very high bar is not particularly healthy. And if we had a bottom-up accountability system, an assessment system that celebrates every every achievement as a as a pat on the back and a badge you can stick on your sleeve. It seems like it's quite straightforward. But just quickly to come back to, to that friend of mine, you know, he, at the moment, he feels like he wouldn't be able to come on a podcast like this and speak openly about uh-huh. how that feels. Because if, if his senior leaders were listening, they would say, well, you know, you're talking the school down, you're bringing the school into disrepute. What if the parents here, you know? Uh-huh. And so there are all kinds of things that people aren't saying yeah. um, that need to be said. And so and so, I absolutely applaud people like yourself and others who, who are speaking out um and those who are speaking out anonymously because there are things that really really need to be said and that we need to overcome that that thing the micro politics of little fears in order to to shift the dial and and these these things actually go to the heart of some of the deepest issues of inequality or, or, or inequity rather in our country i mean for example i i won't name the school but i checked the website of a very prominent private school that um, at least one prime minister has attended. Not not the obvious one, okay? So I, it, it can't be named. Mm. I couldn't find its inspection report anywhere. Now, obviously, it's not inspected by Ofsted, but I have a duty on, on my website to ensure that our inspection reports are published. It, it shouldn't be that difficult on a school that has a fees of around about £45,000 a year, mm. all the extras, to find the inspection report. But I was also struck by the beautiful rhetoric that ran through the entire uh, website around pastoral care and the curriculum and co-curricular, extracurricular things. And I thought, well, the, the, the English, specifically English, I think, model of private or independent schooling has been held up as a gold standard uh, around the world. It's, I mean, it's replicated constantly, isn't it? As schools open outposts in Shanghai and, and, and Hong Kong. Mm. And it's often held up in relation to discussions about cultural capital, but at no point has it been subjected to the kind of accountability measures and inspection regime that state schools are. Yeah. Totally. And it's not just a simple case of saying, well, state schools deserve it because they're funded by the state. Because that that it's absolutely not as simple as that. And it occurs to me in relation to that, that Ofsted, when we went into lockdown, did the decent thing and got out of the way, didn't they? And we didn't see them for months. Mm. And absolutely nobody missed them. And nothing bad happened in schools because Ofsted weren't there. Yeah. And even Ofsted themselves would need to admit that. I don't know if they have admitted that publicly. But they then had the temerity when we as schools made PPE for local hospitals because the government hadn't procured it. When we delivered sandwiches, our school, for example, dug into its own budget to pay for free school meals for weeks and weeks and weeks until the free school meals debacle was solved in, in England by dear old Gavin Williamson. We did all those things. And at the end of that, Amanda Spielman had the temerity to say that schools had spent too much time looking after vulnerable pupils and delivering sandwiches and not enough time focusing, I think it was on reading or something like that, 
when there was precisely no plan for for schools in all this and that 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 to me speaks volumes about the the dissonance between the reality of schools and the ideology of inspection yeah yeah, that's the last word on Ofsted. Yeah, they they snuck back into the conversation. They keep coming, don't they? Yeah. They do. They do keep coming. Yeah. Right. So yeah, let's shift the dial. Let's education. So as you know, um, as as somebody who's listened to previous episodes of the podcast, I very much like to get to know the guest, right, and yep. and to understand a little bit about you and your own experience of right. education, uh-huh. uh, and also the significant learning piece about the yeah. the moments of, of that really shaped your thinking or your life along the way. Yeah. So, what where did you go to school? I went to so I was born in South London, and I went to school at. A, I went to a prep school, actually, not for very long, called Donhead in Wimbledon. And I absolutely loved it. And it's a source of great amusement in my family that one of the reasons I loved it is because you could have unlimited second helpings and third helpings at lunchtime. <laughs> and it was a fairly traditional Jesuit um, prep school, although I'm not sure any Jesuit school is actually traditional, given that given the Jesuits as the sort of, I don't know, the, the SAS of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and it was, I remember it was a very, very happy time. I remember Miss Bennett, who was our, it was a, a primary, whatever it was, three class, because I went went to that school at age seven. And, but I also remember Wing Commander Tyrrell, who taught us history and geography, who was an absolutely terrifying man, and once gave me 800 lines for turning around in class. 800 lines. 800 yeah and it was a, it was a proper shorts all year round blazer and cap school i must not turn around 800 yeah times. I, well I, I think miss bennett was fine with me turning around but wing commander tyrrell had other ideas and <laughs> so he i was thinking this recently he must have been so that was 1979 1980 i think so i'm trying to think what war he was a veteran of because if he was a veteran of the second world war he was absolutely ancient by that point mm. anyway he, he terrorized us but w- yeah, I, we had a great time. I was I was warned by because I, I was taken out of a primary school to go there. I was warned by my friends in the primary school that I'd be beaten to within an inch of my life by the head teacher. But the head teacher I remember is a very gentle priest called Father Wetz, um, who took us for a math class on a Thursday afternoon, I think. And I remember being taught my thirteen and fourteen times table by Father Wetz. And then my family moved up north to Greater Manchester, and I went to another prep school, and then the local grammar school, which confusingly was an independent school. And of course, at the time, to me, it was just a school. Now I work in education, I realise just how mad all that identity around the type of school it was, was. And at the time I went there, it became officially an independent school, and there was a great palaver made about it joining the um, headmasters conference, as it was known back then, which meant next to nothing to us. It had It went by the motto striving for excellence and i remember one of our teachers satirizing that as striving for mediocrity which we all thought as, as, as boys it was an all boys school we all thought that was hilarious <laughs> it was a very very strongly a rugby school and there were many aspects about that school that i found quite troubling and made me quite unhappy actually but there were some fabulous teachers in the english department um a wonderful teacher who who wasn't a drama teacher, but who did all the plays and shows. And I got really involved in that and the choir. And I think that probably had the greatest influence on me becoming a drama teacher. And then I went to 
and, and then I took a year out. God, I sound like a bloody stereotype saying all this. I really do. This is embarrassing. I didn't know you were going to ask me this. And then I took a year out, and I worked for an advertising agency at first, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and they let me do some quite cool stuff. But the first thing they did, and I think they paid me 50 quid for this, is they made me paint <laughs> They made me paint their storeroom. They gave me black paint and white paint, and I had to paint the storeroom. And I think that was a test of character, I suppose, because then thereafter they let me stay. And I sort of pretended to be an account manager at the age of 18, but I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> and um, just watched what to me felt like being in Mad Men, but it wasn't. No, no one smoked that much. Um, and, it, uh, and there wasn't. Right. There wasn't, well, there wasn't I imagine quite a creative. Security either. Quite um, a creative place to, to work, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I, I think the building. It was run by a lovely guy, actually, a really, really fine man. And the building was the Royal Exchange Building in Manchester. And we were on, I think, the fourth or the fifth floor. Oh, yeah. And I think that's now where some Ofsted offices are. So there you go. There's a bit of synchronicity there. How funny. I used to work in the Royal Exchange. Did you? In the cafe. In the yeah, in the cafe. There was a part oh, yeah. of the theatre, yeah. 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 Um, so then, and then I, I, I went overseas to Johannesburg and worked in Johannesburg. God, this was an eye-opener. I lived <clears throat> lived in Johannesburg and worked on the streets for several months with ch street children. Johannesburg is famous for all the wrong reasons in this respect. Uh, for having, I think at the time, this was 1991, about six or 7,000 street children aged three to 18, who many of whom had come from the countryside in South Africa and had been sent there by their parents for a better life or had been disowned or had been victims of sexual abuse or trafficking. And they lived on the streets and I I taught them in my own um, ineffectual way and worked with them. I've spent a while living in the shelter with them, which was, oh God, that was fascinating. Wow. Was extraordinary experience. Was this like a VSO thing? I'd love to say it was as organised as that, but it was done through a friend of my family's um, who was um, involved in, in sort of missionary work. And we bought this ticket. It, it was it was so scatty, it's mad looking back on it. it. Basically, we bought the airline ticket on KLM, and then I went to the airport, got on the plane, landed in Johannesburg, got picked up from the airport. And compared to nowadays, I didn't speak to my parents for about a week. And you think about that nowadays, you know, where everyone's got mobile phones. Uh -huh. They didn't know where I was, who I was with, what I was doing. <laughs> um, and then eventually I got picked up by a friend of my parents and taken to their house. I've never been so pleased to see a bowl of fresh fruit. It was it was incredible. Wow. Living in the shelter in, a dis, in, a, in an abandoned church on the outskirts of Johannesburg with all these street kids. And then I, I worked with them for oh, goodness. A, a months. And did you go up by, by yourself? Were you with anyone? No, I went out completely by myself. I didn't know anybody. At age, like, what, 20 or something? Eight, 18. 18. 18. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, really. I, 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 it was a, I loved it. It was a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous experience. And and here's a, this is totally unrelated to education, but here's a weird thing. My parents gave me a wedding present to take out to some people over there that we knew. And the wedding present was a fish slice, right? And I just put it in my hand luggage to take on the plane. And it went through Heathrow, no problem at all. And it wasn't until I got to Johannesburg, Jan Smuts Airport, as it was known. I doubt it's called Jan Smuts Airport. I hope it's not called Jan Smuts Airport now. And 
<clears throat> of course, the the security guard there were, were like, "What? What the hell are you doing? This is like a weapon in your luggage." And you, know, you can compare that to now, and the idea of even carrying, I don't know, a pencil sharpener in your luggage would, would get you jumped on by security. And I'd waltz through, <laughs> waltz through Heathrow with this with this thing. Anyway, I've got lots of yeah, so then Amazing. I went to- and do you remember what these kids made of you, this eighteen-year-old English um, guy who turned God, up to yeah. teach them stuff? Yeah, well, they just thought. They thought this guy is from another planet. I remember they were very, very, very welcoming and generous and fascinated by me and fascinated by the clothes I was wearing, which, by the way, folks, were were not trendy even for 1991, and fascinated by the things I had with me. Several boys would keep pressing my skin to see, you know, because you know when you press your skin, you get a white mark. Mm. remember them doing that. Um. And they were fascinated by the fact that I didn't have the same diet as them and that um, they wanted to know what football team I supported. They were obsessed with Manchester United, obsessed with Liverpool. Um, They had millions of questions. And they were quite fascinated by everything about life life outside their sphere. And, of course, I I probably got this totally wrong. Um, And so I I probably thought I was some kind of saviour. But... um, Looking back on it, it's so hard to navigate the, the, the to walk the line between being just totally wide-eyed and fascinated by a new culture and being respectful and humble in the presence of the people who actually live there and thinking your job isn't, you know, you could learn a million things more from these people than they're ever going to learn from you. Um, yeah. And there were inevitably some really sad stories and some very shocking things and and the f- sort of as full an exposure, I suppose, as someone in my position could have had to the realities of living in a in a highly racist and racialized country. But I don't think I fully took on board those lessons until years later. I don't think I processed them or or understood them. I think I was just, wow, this is this is nuts, but I'm just gonna go with it. Um yeah, so I'm just trying to think of the timeline 91. So that was that was yeah. post Mandela's release. It was post Mandela's release, and there was it was a period of time when there was huge unrest yeah um, i read a really good book recently called knowing mandela which where, right. where people talk about what a what a brilliant like sort of peaceful transition of power yeah. it was but there was there, it was not peaceful out in the townships there was lots yeah. and lots of, of violence unfolding i remember it as being very bloody and there being a lot of violence but not being directly exposed to it except on a handful of occasions and then it was mm. really terrifying but also getting really, really told off for staying out late, really told off for staying out late, because where I would go and hang out wasn't where people like me were expected to be hanging out. I also remember naively, I don't know if you you know Johannesburg particularly well, but they had, I don't know if they still have this, um, they had what they called black taxis, which were like people carriers, and they were really only for black people to travel from townships into work and to and from work in in, in the city and I on a few occasions just got on them because it was the easiest thing to get rather than getting the public service bus and I remember on several occasions being told with the best of intentions by someone on that taxi you you need to get off this son you shouldn't be on here um because you're you're putting yourself at risk mm. taking kids to hospital and they were and hospitals and the, and the area of the hospital for black people was just a, a, a mass of people in dire straits facing long waits with pretty horrendous things that had happened to them 
Um, but I also remember learning a great deal about um I remember a great tr tr or trying to remember to learn a great deal about serving other people and all that. Um and I'm very careful about what I would say about it because I I was the naive white boy from a very wealthy background compared compared to them. And um if I think if I was doing it now, I'd do it very differently. But I would still do it. Interesting. And I suppose that you could think, yeah, there's a wider conversation there, isn't there, about the nature of missionary work yeah, more generally. Yeah, and it, it wasn't really missionary work, because, but that's how I had access to it. Yeah. Um, but And those kids ran ring as a teacher, ran rings around me. I mean, I, I, I was doing right. uh, yeah, talk about a baptism of fire at age yeah, 18. Yeah. That's something else. Well, that's that definitely like, counts as our first episode of Significant Learning. Um, right. So, okay. so is there anything else that springs to mind as you look back um, over your life since then about like sort of like key ideas that have shaped you, maybe key figures? It could be yeah. a book that you read. What are the what are the things that have really shaped you into the, into the the leader that um, you are today? Quite a, quite a few things, really. I mean, from my own education, definitely a number of my own teachers, particularly in regard to English and history to an extent as well. Uh, but but then. When I started work, and this is really something I've only kind of processed now, the people I worked with for the best part of 20 years in Scotland, when I joined the profession, it was at a time of local authority reorganisation. And I think there was a sense in which Scottish education over time was going to have to change. But I met an awful lot of very inspiring people who were totally dedicated to the community that they lived in and absolutely committed to ensuring that young people were really well looked after. Uh, and I can think people who stand out for me, uh, and, and it's almost pernicious to name them, but uh, John Donoher, who was the first assistant head teacher I ever worked for, and John, a big guy from Ayrshire, from a little village in Ayrshire called Sorn. Ever get the chance to go to Ayrshire, go to Sorn. Beautiful place, right? And it's the same area as Bill Shankly comes from right? right and john was pretty old school uh in the in the old days he had worn a a gown around school but this, this was st joseph's academy kilmarnock um it's what people would have unfairly labeled a uh a box standard comprehensive school no no school should be labeled that but that's how some people would have seen it it, it mm. was unremarkable and in that there were lots of schools like it but it was a really, really special school, and people really were dedicated to it. And John would do his work in a tracksuit every day um, and then change into a tie every now and again. And John taught me the value of, of connections and relationships with pupils and their families. He'd tell every class he taught they were his favourite class, and he really meant it. And he, he was such a, a kind, decent person who just absolutely lived out that ethic of public service. So he, he would be one. All the head teachers I worked for, um, Alan Ward, Bridget Rooney, who absolutely supported all the work I did um, in drama. We set up a theatre company. We went on tour. We we got into the we got into the papers for all the right reasons with reviews of shows, the national papers in Scotland. We performed at big theatres. That, that that was amazing. I loved all that. And in that respect, the biggest inspiration there was the pupils and their families. And I'm I'm still really good friends with lots of those pupils who are now in their thirties and and their families, and we'd go to weddings and christenings and funerals. And that those things left a huge mark on me. And then and then latterly, 
I ended up as head of that school. And that process coincided, I think, with the first, well, two things really that stand out. One is curriculum for excellence, which I, which I look back on now as a huge wasted opportunity in Scotland to, to do something genuinely progressive. But I don't think what that ended up with was progressive. And then also that first phase of school starting to get to grips with young people's well-being and mental health is an absolute priority. And that was because of very specific experiences that we had and the people I worked with there. And there's just too many to name. But yeah, I've been very lucky in my in my career. Mm, really interesting. Thank you. Just just on that, like I know this is probably a big conversation, but would you mind to just give me like a, a pricey version of that what you just said about the curriculum for excellence in Scotland and 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 how you think that it was a missed opportunity. So I've been I've been doing a lot of work in Wales recently with the yeah. curriculum for Wales, and it's really really interesting, huge efforts to to rethink how they how they're um, going about what happens in schools, yeah. and with obvious sort of possibilities for things to go wrong as well as right. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm very interested to to learn more about because I don't know a huge amount about the Scottish experience. Yeah. What would be the short version of, of what you just said? Well, the first thing to say is, of course, that the architect of the Welsh reforms is Graham Donaldson, yeah. who was originally very influential in Scotland. He was chief HMI in Scotland. And I, I think that I suppose the shorthand version, and I'm sure there's critics that will tell me I'm being rose-tinted here, was that come the early 2000s, I think Scottish education had reached a point where people felt that this world-class reputation that it had was built on the backs of a relatively small proportion of the population, or rather there was a significant minority of the population that wasn't being well served by that education. And there's no doubt that there were many great things about the Scottish education system, that the idea of the Laird of Pets, for example, the idea of the absolute um, the idea of the what did you say just then? There's something called the the, the laird of Pirts, the, the the idea of uh, of a man, uh, and it's this is an old idea, so a man, but a person who is of their community and has a wide range of education that allows them to access knowledge from all sorts of spheres. A sort of, I suppose, you might package it as a Renaissance person. Okay, like um, a polymath or something. Yeah, polymath. Um, and I think I think that's an accurate definition of it. I stand corrected if it's not. But um, and the the Scottish education needed to change to become more inclusive, to embrace uh, different types of learning and different aspirations that different people had, and to meet the needs of a, a very changing society in, in all sorts of aspects of its demographic. And also, that, and that's where phrases like 21st century skills came from, I think, which is actually much derided, uh, unfairly, I think. And that also coincided with the huge platform that people like Sir Ken Robinson had. And I speak as someone who is an unabashed fan of Sir Ken Robinson. Um, and that's not to say I would I would brook no criticism of him, but I, I think his influence is um, being sorely misrepresented sometimes recently. Yeah. And... Um, all of that contributed to a change in education that was often driven by people who were in the arts, who were in creative industries, who wanted to make education a much more expansive and enlivening process. And I think we took a lot of steps towards that. And I was very privileged to be part of early groups that looked at drama and art and music education and contributed to the development of the curriculum in that respect. And it introduced the concept of interdisciplinary learning of 
defining a school not just by its exam results, but by the link between its academic education and its ethos, personal development and well-being was at the part of that. It, it mirrored some of the things that were happening in England under New Labour. But I think where it fell apart is that we never addressed properly the issue of formal public exams and assessment. And consequently, it was always driven back to a less than progressive view of how we judge and measure the progress of young people throughout an education system. And lots of people, myself included, tried to experiment with things, some of which worked, some of which didn't. And I worry now that people conflate that with what some will see as a decline in pupils' behaviour, for example, in schools, because they'll say, basically, kids were given too much freedom, staff didn't have enough guidance. I think staff didn't have enough guidance. I think that's absolutely true. I think it was extremely patchy and very dependent on individual schools and local authorities. And in the end, really, a, a huge missed opportunity was is the narrative I would put around it. And you can see it in the decline of modern languages, for example, in Scottish schools. You can see it uh, in the decline of some other subjects. You can see it in a loss of confidence that people had in the education system and in the way that people have been able to take pot shots at Scottish education because of things like PISA rankings, none of which I think is fair because Scotland has maintained, a where and England has not done this, a highly trained workforce where the gatekeeping around the profession in teaching is extremely tight. Uh, England jettisoned the General Teaching Council that it copied from Scotland, um, but Scotland has maintained that. And I think a combination of Scottish education unions, um, and I've got relatives who are high up in Scottish education unions, just for full disclosure, um, and the GTC and Education Scotland and the government have all had a much more productive working relationship than the much more combative one that's exists down in England. When mm. I came in, I could not believe how supine the unions were. They've only just found their voice, I think. And I was dismayed at the way in which there didn't seem to be constructive and creative conflict around discussions to do with the curriculum. So that's a potted version of it. Mm, it's, it's fascinating. High, the curriculum for excellence is high, it's a highly charged issue and very contested, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I realised that it, I asked you to do something really difficult there, which is to summarise this highly contested thing, complex, huge thing. In, in, but, but thank you. That was really insightful, especially the stuff around the, the, the way that, that, that Scotland has maintained the integrity of the workforce, not least, you know, the, the way that they that they pay their teachers. Like when the, when the, 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 the there's recently some tables doing the rounds uh, where they were comparing, you know, how how um teachers in England are, are paid compared to Scotland. And the difference is really vast, like sort of eight, yeah. like for a middle leader, it's like the difference between sort of like 30, 35 and 43,000 pounds a year or something. And you're like, how can anybody in those Northern towns in like Carlisle and like close to the border, how can any schools on the English side of the border recruit when somebody's within commuting distance of like an eight grand pay, pay hike yeah, for the same right. role, yes. you know? Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it. And I'm not sure it was always the case. I think the disparity may have worked at one stage in the 90s and early 2000s, may have worked the other way. And I, and I would be honest as, as well and say that the one of the frustrations as a head teacher in Scotland was that because all schools are local authority schools that are in the state system, with the, with the exception of a handful that slightly sit outside it, the grant maintained, I had less control over my budget than I do in a school in England. And consequently, it was very hard 
to appoint staff who were not teachers if we wanted to create roles that were support roles that we thought were quite creative and, and that were needed and that responded to circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I know that was a, a frustration that often many of my fellow heads in Scotland said. And when I, when it was clear that I was moving to to leave to to go to England, that several people said, "Oh, well, you'll like that freedom a lot more." And I, and I do think that one of the problems Scotland had is it didn't resolve the conflict between the very central allocation of resources to local authorities and the need for them to be uh, managed and, and that management to be vo- to, to be devolved to schools in their entirety. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I I don't know what the percentage of the budget that I managed in in Scotland was, but I managed 100% of the budget in England. In Scotland, it would have been a fraction of that because so much of it was devolved to the centre. The flip side of that is that the the more... I think the more intelligent and I think more constructive working between unions and local authorities in Scotland means that there is much more protection, quite rightly, for staff who work in schools in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like, and this is just and it feels to me, like that's not always the case in England because it's possible to rip up the Burgundy book and for different terms and conditions to apply. Sorry, the Burgundy Book. The Burgundy Book being the terms and conditions that govern uh, teachers working in state schools. Right, got you. Okay, yeah. thank you. And, thank and you. Matt's, uh, and it is my understanding, I'm not part of a mat, that mats don't need to adhere to that. And I can see that there might be some advantages to that, but I suppose the issue is whether or not we feel that that's good in the long run for the equity and status of the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Okay. All right, thank you. So, so we're going to wrap this up in the next few minutes, right. and I'm going to—I've got I have three more questions for you, and it's okay. the three questions that I ask to every guest: positives, challenges, solutions, and you can have one of each. Okay. Um, right. And and so let's start with the positives. Something that you like the look of, something that we're getting right currently, something that you would like to boost the signal of or shout from the rooftops about. Okay, I see a huge number of school leaders and schools working incredibly hard to include all young people in their setting. And I think we need to shout about that and talk about that more. We need to resource it better. And people need to be praised for doing that, not run the risk of an unfavorable judgment. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, thank you. I know that you've uh, we were having a conversation off air earlier about um, about attendance, and attendance is obviously a huge issue, and and that links to what you were just talking about, isn't it? Um, isn't it about inclusion and just yeah. you know? And I suppose make sure that people is, feel welcomed and a part of school life. Yeah, that's it. And I suppose this, and this isn't a second positive. I'm sneaking in that inclusion is only uh, is only possible because of the dedication of the staff. And I think I, I, I'm in awe of that. So it's it's that thing, the yeah. way stuff make inclusion happen. Totally. Love it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the next one is what is the major challenge that we face? And it's not allowed to be Ofsted, even if you think that. Right. that is no, well, it, it, it isn't Ofsted. I think the major challenge we face is making sure that schools are, that schooling is worth turning up for, for staff and for pupils. And what I mean by that, and I'm choosing the word worth really carefully here, is first of all, that it's resourced properly and fairly, and that it's given its worth in society. 
and that staff are recognized for what they do. And I'm choosing the word staff carefully because there's a real danger of just talking about teachers. Yeah. The school I work in wouldn't work if we took everyone out of it who's not a teacher. And we say in our school that every adult is a teacher because you've got something to impart to young people. So making schools worth turning up for for adults, making them great places to work and making sure that the same applies to young people and families, that they're places that people that young people want to go to with you know with the obvious caveat that all teenagers at some point will go oh god do i have to go to school that's normal that i i'd be disappointed if if young people didn't say that Mm. but taking that out of it you want them to think this has really got something to offer me and i'm excited about the possibilities of at least some part of it and i feel like i'm included i feel like my voice is heard and it's going to help me do something great with my life and I don't think we've got that. I mean, I think all of us want that. And I think even the people I disagree with want that. We we just need to find common ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that brings us to the last question then, which is how are we going to do that? And I, I realize how hard that question is. How are you going to, how are we going to create a system that is worth turning up for? Right. Well, I think I, I think that someone has got to have the courage to stop the bus and to say, right enough right we we don't need any more reform we don't need any more change until we've had a conversation about this and we've properly considered the possibilities we've properly considered the impacts and we've drawn up a i don't know for the sake of argument people will talk about a 10 a 15 a 20 year plan for education that we are actually going to stick to and that in as far as this is possible in what's a fairly febrile environment has some kind of cross-party consensus and support to it. And that will mean, I'm afraid, jettisoning some of the balmy voices on all sides and focusing on a very, very broad common common ground. And I think there is a huge area of common ground between an awful lot of people. It's really easy to be distracted by Twitter. But as someone said on Twitter the other day, there's 5% who bang on about something and the other 5% who come against them. And in the middle is 90% who are saying, we'll have a bit of both, thanks very much, because we, we, we are doing what we think works for the young people in front of us at this time. And I think that's where very, very unhelpful conflicts um, are are set up. And, and this isn't this doesn't need to be dialectical. This, this needs to be about finding more than just a conflict that gives us a common ground. It needs to be about navigating a common ground in the first place and going at it in that respect, if you see what I mean, rather than accepting we need a big bang, first of all. Uh, And I think that will have the impact of taking education away from the political football arena. And there are examples of this internationally. Singapore, and I can speak from experience of, of seeing this, is an example of that, but it did it over a 50-year period. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying we should replicate the Singaporean education system. I'm absolutely not. But I remember speaking to people in Singapore who talked about their 50-year plan after the Second World War and recognised that this was rooted in their sense of national identity, the way in which they relate to other countries, their economy, a whole load of things. So unless we're prepared to have that conversation, it's actually going to be quite hard to move this on, I think, but it is possible. Mm. What's absolutely certain is that there, there will need to be a continuum of change. I'm not saying there should be no change. It just needs to be considered change rather than 
an ever-turning wheel of thoughtless, ideologically-led change. That was perfectly put. Thank you so much, Ben. I really always enjoy speaking with you. I feel like we could have spoken for much longer and that I have a huge amount that I can learn from you. Um, I look forward to having many more such conversations in the in the years ahead. Um, but for now, thank you very much for giving so generously of your time this evening. Uh, I really enjoyed it. There's such a lot in here that I'm going to go away and mull over some more. Um, Thank you very much. Is there anything that you would like to to leave our listeners and or viewers with, with um, any final words? Is there anything that you would point them in the direction of? Um, anything I'd point them in the direction of? I'd point them in the direction of your local school. Go and celebrate it. And if you're thinking of going into education as a profession, give it serious thought. Talk to people who love it and ride on their t- coattails rather than being driven by some of the negativity you might hear around it. And for God's sake, celebrate the young people of this country because they really deserve it. And thank you, James, for having me on tonight. It's, it's There's some lovely things you said there. And um, yeah, hu- humbly, I thank you. And um, I, I always try to learn a lot from everyone I encounter. I've learned a lot from, from you as well. So thank you. We have a narrow curriculum Which squeezes out the arts So let's there is a lack of imagination and not enough fun. So let's rethink education. Children should be self directed, showing us their way. Should be the core of what we teach. Learn for life. So let's trust, let's be brave. Let's do what's right and not what is required. Transformation that embraces